0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello,
2: everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tanya Tuller, the host of the channel, and today I have a great pleasure talking to Kimberly Casabri about her new book, Destinations in Mind, portraying places on the Roman Empire souvenirs. Welcome, Kimberly.
1: Thank you. I appreciate being invited.
2: So, Kimberly, before we go into talking about uh, your wonderful new book, would you tell us a little bit about what you do when you are not writing and researching and traveling the uh, roads of the ancient uh, Roman Empire um, and what perhaps you are currently working on?
1: Sure. So I'm, I'm trained as an art historian, um, and I specialize in the ancient Mediterranean, which does allow for a lot of wonderful wonderful travel. Um, prior to this book, I was working on public commemoration, public monuments, um, looking at um, why communi- communities set them up, um, how they changed over time, how they've survived into the present day. And that's actually the topic of the book um, that I'm writing right now. I'm writing a book on uh, triumphal arches, um, which is leading to some more some more travel. Um, I'm principally interested in an in empire and imperialism. I'm interested in what happens to regions um, after conquest, how that changes um, artistic production. I'm also very interested in how um, modern empires interact with ancient empires and change how we understand those ancient empires. So a lot of my work has been kind of disentangling ancient empires from what um, modern empires thought they knew about them. Um, I also travel a lot in, in pursuit of, of replicas. I'm fascinated by plaster casts and architectural models, and especially as they intersect with empire, um, what we can see about um, imperial biases based on what kinds of, of art and what kinds of monuments get replicated in this fashion and then organized into, into new shows. So that's, that's what I do when I, I'm not writing a book on, on souvenirs. I'm out traveling and collecting my own souvenirs. Yeah, brilliant.
2: Um, Well, fascinating. Um, Definitely monumental artist. That's uh, that's a a lot to write about, I'm sure. Um, So in in your book, you you write um, the following. You say, um, movement lies at the heart of the itinerary. The word etymology reinforces this original sense. The Latin itinerarium derives from iter meaning a journey. Um, So basically, your book takes us, in a sense, on a journey and what a journey that is. So I hope we'll be able to take our listeners today on a journey. Your book is um, divided into mainly, if I may say, four chapters. One um, is on the road, so it's literally going from today's Spanish city of Cadiz to Rome. Then we are stopping at the Games with charioteers and gladiators. We'll go at the border of the Empire and visit the Hadrian's Wall. Coincidentally, we just started a 1900th anniversary of the Hadrian's Wall. And then we'll relax by the sea um, in the Bay of uh, Naples. So um, you say, yes, the research uh, leads you um, in all these uh, places, uh, visiting, collecting your own souvenirs. So when you were talking about these destinations, we talk about, you, you talk about, I should say, um, real destinations, but also evoked ones, remembered, imagined. You talk about this sense of place. So which one of these places evokes the strongest memories for you and why?
1: Ah, so which of the places I visited um, for the book? Yes. I. It, it's hard to choose because these are the, the places I went for this book are among the most beautiful cities today and also were among the most beautiful cities of antiquity. Um, I'd say Tarragona in Spain um, was a spectacular experience. Um, one of my goals for the book is to to get um to get readers to like, look beyond the city of Rome to see all the other splendid cities in the empire. Um, And Tarragona is one of those cities. It's one of the leading cities of Spain. Um, It sits right on the Mediterranean Sea. It has this beautiful um, topography. So it's, um, there's an upper city up on the cliff and then the city kind of cascades down to the Mediterranean. The amphitheater is right there um, by the sea. Um, there's also a racetrack or a circus for chariot racing. Um, it's just a it's a stunning setting um, and with all of the all the amenities that you would hope to find um, in a Roman city.
2: Right. And um, this this city is right on on a much longer route uh, connecting basically Iberian Peninsula with uh, with Rome. Um, So who were these people who would pass Tarragona? Who were these people who would be on the road? And what kind of objects did you trace on this road?
1: Right. Um, There's been a lot of interesting work on on who was traveling. And mostly we know this through um, literary references to trips that important people took. Um, sometimes in tombstones, um, people will record where where they've been. Um, we don't have as much information as we'd like about who was on the road. So certainly, um, uh, government officials with their retinues are on the road. Soldiers are on the road as they're moving around to um, be stationed in different areas. There's also some tourism um, in the Roman Empire. There's a sense of like going to see a going to see a new site. Um, so I think all all of that. That range from government officials to soldiers, um, to people, the elite who who had the means to to travel um, for the pleasure of it. Right. Um, in terms of the um, the objects, it's um, it can be difficult to identify particular souvenirs. Um, If we go by specific definitions, so if a public monument is perpetuating a memory for a future public, a souvenir should be kind of prompting a personal memory, should be prompting memory of a personal experience. But it can be really difficult when we find objects in the archeological record to know what memories individuals associated with them. Um, So there's there's hypothesis um, involved when we have um, an object representing one place and you find it far away. Um, You can hypothesize that uh, maybe someone carried that back, or it circulated and appealed to someone um, to purchase far away. Um, in the, the chapter where Tarragona comes up, um, I'm looking at a, a set of itineraries that, that survive on silver cups. Um, there are four of these silver cups, um, each slightly different. Um, and each cup has this itinerary from the city you mentioned, Cadiz, um, in, in south in, at the edge of Spain. And then the, the trip begins in Cadiz and it ends in Rome. And there are about a hundred cities along the way where you stop. And so the itinerary is just basically telling you, if you're in this city, you're going to go to that city next. And it's this many miles away. That's so a very basic way of, very schematic way of leading you through this, this vast landscape of the empire. Um, so I, I found it interesting that that perhaps a group of people who had taken these journeys, because the itineraries are similar on these cups, but they're each slightly different. Um, so like four different people um, in four different cups, um, I tried to imagine like which which community, which group of people might have wanted to commemorate um, successful repeated journeys um, to Rome. And Spain is really rich in this regard because a lot of important families in Spain um, had successful careers in Rome and they would travel back and forth and then perhaps retire back to Spain um, at the end of their careers. So it's also a way of thinking about like, who are the movers and shakers in the Roman Empire? It's not just people who are born in the city of Rome and live their entire lives there. Um, the very best um, men of the provinces are also going back and forth.
2: So these itinerary cups um, you mentioned were made out of silver. Is this surprising for this kind of object? Because it is a quite an expensive material. And the fact that they've also survived um, is quite surprising to me.
1: Yes. The silver is extremely strange, as is their survival. Um, So itineraries survive in two different ways. Itineraries survive because they've been recopied a lot over time. And so we don't actually have them on the original um, support. It's just because every century someone copied it again. Some itineraries survive because they were, were carved in stone on public monuments. So that's another way itineraries survive. To my knowledge, there are no other itineraries um, engraved on silver cups. So it's certainly very strange. And these are not, I think, objects that you would you wouldn't take the object on the road with you as your math. This is something I think you have a, a more basic document with you, perhaps on papyrus or a little sheet of wood and then um, and then you're maybe commemorating your journey by having it engraved on this silver cup. Typically, these are strange for silver cups. Silver cups can be, they can be plain, um, they can have patterns on them, they can have mythological scenes. What we don't find on them is like an, an entire like 100 word text. Um, having that much text on a silver cup is is strange. So these are strange as itineraries and they're also strange as as silver cups. And their survival is really unusual. Um, they survive because they were tossed into uh, a sacred spring, a spring sacred to the god Apollo, um, where uh, someone would have deposited in the spring and asked Apollo for some kind of favor, or maybe Apollo had already granted the favor and this is compensating Apollo. So at the time that they are deposited in the sacred spring, um, their principal value was probably the metal, um, more, than the, more than the words on the metal. Um, So it's hard to know. Um, We don't know who who put them in the the spring, and we also don't know particularly why they did. Um, We just have the the fact of their deposition in the spring with a lot of other um, metal work. And it was excavated um, in the mid-19th century um, in difficult conditions because it's a hot spring, so the the conditions of recovery are are difficult. So we don't quite have the scientific documentation that we would have um, if they had been excavated more recently.
2: How heavy are they? Because um, is it something that you can actually walk with or is too heavy to to carry? And that would also tell us that there would never be really a movable object.
1: You know, these are, um, they're not that heavy to hold. Um, these are, maybe they're the size of a juice glass, um, easily held in your hand. Um, I think the... Oh, one reason why I, I suspect they probably weren't like packed up in your bag while you're on the on the road is because typically um, sure. silver cups are associated with the dining room. Right. You use them when you're dining. Um, they're also um, prestigious gifts and religious sanctuaries. So you might donate them to a god. Um, but I, 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 fi- I would find it really strange if someone was was traveling with these with this as their as their map.
2: So basically a souvenir that is sort of designed at the end of the journey rather than picked up on the journey. Exactly. Mm, very interesting. Well, the other objects that you discuss um, are glass, molded glass cups with the images of charioteers and gladiators. And. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about those, where they were found, how many of those we have? I believe there are some fragments as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, if, I, I'm probably not supposed to have favorite chapters, but this was definitely my favorite chapter. This was the most fun um, to research. Um, these glass cups are beautiful. They're um they're half cups, um, so maybe two to three inches tall, maybe two to three inches in diameter. They're made out of this mold bone glass, um, date around 75 CE. And at the time, this was a new, it was a new technology. Um, just in recent generations had had technicians figured out that they could make a mold and then blow glass into that mold and then reuse the mold to kind of mass produce, in quotation marks, much more complex designs than had been produced in the past. It also meant that um, there was a new market for glassware. So it was more available for a wider range of, of consumers to purchase. So it's an exciting new, new medium. These cups, um, they have around the rems, they have the names of um, either famous gladiators or famous charioteers. So they can, they're they're one or the other. They don't mix the, they typically don't mix the gladiators and charioteers. They have the names of famous contestants, the contestants that that the, the authors in Rome are talking about. They're talking about their adventures and their misadventures in the city of Rome. So these are famous um, competitors. And then beneath the names, we have them competing. So on the gladiator cups, we see paired gladiators in combat. And on the charioteer cups, we actually see the charioteers the racing um, around, around the racetrack. Um, what I found, uh, Particularly fascinating about these objects is that this is quite common subject matter. The Romans, throughout the Roman Empire, spectacles like this were, were really popular. So you can find, um, you can find this imagery on terracotta lamps and on terracotta plaques. Um, it was really common. What's interesting on these glass cups is that the, the glass itself is translucent, so you can see through it. So when you're whole when you're looking at this cup, you can see um you can see the imagery on both sides of the glass wall. And that creates entirely new. Um, viewing opportunities
2: yes i really enjoy that part of the description that sensory um, experience so to speak when you are holding an, an object and i think a lot of times when we are just looking at the objects on display in, in galleries museums we are deprived from that very rudimentary uh, form of the object and role of the object uh, that people who designed them would have um, obviously had in mind. Um, So which one of these cups, as you say, it's the favorite chapter, but you have also your favorite cup. And could you perhaps describe a little bit more how it feels when the light goes through this translucency of glass Um, for, you know, you described very nicely in, in that chapter how important that is in order to really fully read the inscription. So could you say a little bit more on that?
1: Yes. Um, A real breakthrough for me came when I was um, traveling through England, and I actually found replicas of these cups. If you go online, you can find the historical glassmakers, um, Mark Taylor and David Hill, and they made really close replicas of these cups, which I could purchase. So I went to their website and I actually purchased all of them Um, and I lived with them. I've been living with them ever since. Um, But for the year when I was writing this chapter, um, I lived with these cups. They were on my desk. They were on my coffee table. They were on my kitchen table. I observed um, how they looked at different times of day and different lighting conditions. I observed what they look like with water in them, with wine in them, what I can see when I'm actually sipping from them or holding them, and that was revolutionary to like think of them outside of the museum case or outside of the illustration, which typically just shows you like a close up view and not the view the the kind of uh, the oblique view that you have when you're actually holding and looking at the objects. Um, I don't have a I don't have a favorite, um, because I I did get one of all the ones that I could get. What I really enjoy, um, I think my favorite view is that when one of these objects is sitting on a table in front of you, you have this uh, this angled view of the object. And you can see um, the images on the front wall, and you can also see the images on the back wall of the object at the same time. And it does actually look like the gladiators are kind of wrestling around the arena floor or the charioteers are actually running around the racetrack because you can see them in this circle on the the glass wall. So sort
2: of um, a movement is
1: there. Um, movement, yes. You can actually literally move the objects. You can pick up the object and you can turn it, um, which is what you have to do if you want to read the text. You pick up the object and then you start turning it. And then, then you yourself are putting the figures... In motion. Right. So I think of it as having a little bit of a little virtual reality um, of the spectacles um, in your own hand.
2: Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Sort of a very active gaze um, on on the object. Yes. Fascinating. And they're of different colors as well. So the glass is not all discolored glass, it's actually with uh, uh, different colors. So brown, niched, and yellowish, uh, blue yeah there's a really yeah.
1: beautiful lapis blue
2: yeah would you think they were coming in sets or individually would they be given to particular uh, people or would they have
1: been purchased like you've purchased your your own this is the key question the typical the typical the past interpretation of these objects is that you would go to a game and you'd pick one of these up at the game as a souvenir of having gone to the game um But we don't find these objects at arenas. We don't find them at amphitheaters. We don't find them at circuses. And I think if they were being sold there, I would expect to see at least a few fragments um, and excavations of those contexts. Where we find them instead are um, typically in graves. Um, So these are kind of treasured objects that you might keep with you your whole life and then then be buried with them. Um, And when, when we do find them in graves, they're often with other beautiful glass objects rather than with other sports paraphernalia. So it seems like if we can use that assemblage to help help us understand how people were seeing the cups, I think they were seeing them as like beautiful and innovative glassware kind of in their own right. Um, as one, if you wanted to collect maybe three different kinds of glass, this is one kind of glass you might, you might want to buy. And in terms of where we're, we're finding them geographically, they're depicting these sports stars in Rome these all stars, um, typically they're found in the provinces. They're found in France, and Switzerland, Germany, a little bit Spain, um, the Netherlands, um, Britain. Um, so it seems like maybe the idea originated in the city of Rome, but they were certainly being produced in the in the Roman provinces. Fascinating. I will go and,
2: and, and check those replicas now. I'm, I'm tempted to get some for, for my own table sets. Um, so from all these um, big names, um, big sportsmen, spectacle cups, um, we go to a much more desolate uh, part of, along the border of the Hadrian Wall. I always feel I live in England and um, you know we have this proverbial strange weather and up north on a Hadrian wall for someone coming from um, today's Syria or Egypt from those kind of climates, this must have been really um, at the end of the world, so to speak, and really harsh conditions. And yet you are showing us all these examples of beautiful objects that have this wall depicted in one way or the other. So clearly somebody wanted to remember being there or remember having seen uh, this, this wall. To whom did Hadrian's wall matter?
1: that's the that's the key question and I, I agree with you this I think this would have been a very stressful posting um, for 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 a Roman soldier when I was hiking along Hadrian's wall, the rain was was blowing horizontally directly into my face. Um, so I think this was a, a difficult difficult posting. Um, but when we look at who was actually posted along Hadrian's wall, it's men and their families from all over the empire and it helps us, think through exactly what we mean by Roman. Um, so when Hadrian's Wall is built in the 120 CE, it's built by legions, but then it's built by kind of Roman legions. And then it's auxiliary troops that defend and maintain the wall. And auxiliary troops are, are men um, recruited in the provinces and they don't necessarily have citizenship. So they, they earn citizenship at the end of their term of service if they survive that long. Um, so we have, um, we have guys from Syria stationed at the wall, guys from Spain, guys from France. In um, recent research, especially research by um, Elizabeth Green, who's working at the, the fort at Vendalanda, where leather shoes survive, um, showing us that they actually they had their families in the forts with them. Um, so it's not just the guys. They're also bringing their whole families um, to this posting. So I think for, for the men and the families who are stationed at this wall, it's a place of camaraderie. Um, And often they're gonna spend multiple years of their adult life here. Um, And where we find these these select objects that seem to commemorate Hadrian's wall, they're they're in England um, and there's one um, found in France at at Almia, which is a place that did in fact send soldiers um, to Britain. So we hypoth- the hypothesis has always been that it, it must have been soldiers stationed along this wall um, who wanted to remember their service. Maybe this is a retirement gift, or maybe they're um, being posted somewhere else, and they're wanting to to have a memento from um, from their time from their time being posted along this wall.
2: Right. So the objects we are talking about are so called uh, fort uh, pans. There are metalwork. Uh, bronze if I remember correctly and uh, they are enameled so they have this beautiful uh, colored uh, enameled decoration. Would you be able to um, elaborate a little bit more on how that's been done and um, how does it look like?
1: Good these are these are absolutely beautiful objects. Um, They're in a shape that we tend not to use today. It's a tiny a tiny little bowl with a handle. Um, so they're sometimes called pans, or um, there's some other technical terms, but I think pan gets closest to it. But they're, they are really tiny bowls, like the, the size of a sugar bowl, but with a handle. Um, they are cast bronze or copper alloy, and they're beautifully enameled. So they're um, blue, turquoise, yellow, red, purple. These are beautifully colorful objects. Um, we associate them with Hadrian's Wall because around the rim of the vessel are, um, are the names of a few of the forts. And it tends, it's the forts on the western half of the wall, which is, which is interesting. Um, so the forts are on the western half of the wall. And then a couple of the objects have a fortified wall motif running around the, the vessel wall. One of them that was found spectacularly recently by a metal detectorist um, actually has a, an abstract pattern with its roots back in the Celtic tradition. Um, so the people's making and and purchasing these objects, they had a choice of like the the fortified wall motif, or they could have this this more Celtic style um, decoration, um, which is an interesting it's an interesting option. The other um, potentially Celtic aspects um, here have to do with the place names. So the it's the The fort names are written in the Roman alphabet, but they're recording um, place names that have sort of significance in the Celtic language. So that's another way in which the the vessels are kind of entangled with the the present and the past um, of this land.
2: Yes, I really enjoyed seeing this connection you're making between uh, the text and the image on the objects of art so material culture, let's call it, in general, because we usually study this when um, we are looking at manuscripts. Um, any kind of book culture, we will be going into relationships between the text and image, but not so much on material culture. But here, this is clearly um, an example and a great example of, of both, and including also a technical feature of enameling on metalwork, which, again, is a highly skilled um, craftsmanship and is something that um, a Celtic uh, tradition also mastered. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more, something that also transpired in um, the, the small glass cups that we've just been discussing about. There's this sort of a globalization that can be seen through this, objects uh, with the text, with the language used, when we have obviously Latin, but we have Latin that is abbreviated, that is a bit corrupted, if I can use that word, mm-hmm. and also other languages that uh, penetrate this. Mm-hmm. Um, and how this globalization is through language transpires in visual culture.
1: Wow, that's such a great question, and it's a tough question. <laughs> Um, I uh, I think anyone who studies the Roman Empire has to has to speak multiple languages just to do the research. So I'm I'm also I'm fascinated by um, the persistence of regional languages um, that are captured in this this everyday use of the Latin alphabet, the Roman alphabet. Um, so. We see, especially on if we go back to the itinerary cups, those itinerary cups are, are capturing 100 place names, and those place names have significance in, say, like the Phoenician language or the Celtic language um, or the Greek language. Um, so we're getting the... We're, we see scribes using the Roman alphabet, but through that work, um, we can we get a sense of the cadences of the language and um, words that continue to be used, especially these place names. Um, We'll see. I think even a little bit more um, when we turn to the the next the next objects, the bay bottles. Um, there, there's a, a lot of there are a lot of inscriptions um, on these vessels, and we can see that um, the, the scribes are are um, are. Have a loose approach to um, Latin grammar, um, which is fine. Like if if I tried this Latin grammar in my own Latin courses, I would I would get a poor grade. But this is I think it's interesting to see how the the language itself is being used by everyday people, as opposed to say Cicero um, writing in Rome. I think it's really valuable to have these um, what are called material texts, um, texts that survive on their original supports. Um, uh, so I, this is a, a the the globalization of the Latin alphabet and the ways in which it it captures the the cadences and the the place names of a wide range of peoples. That's it's a topic that I'm fascinated by, and I do I hope to return to it. Yeah,
2: um, I hope so too because I find it. Although I don't work on 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 the Roman period, I find it uh, fascinating as well. Um, so y- your book tackles all this sort of um, objects that could be sold on in shops and spectacles at sports venues at forts Um, we'll talk about more uh, the uh, sparse cityscapes of uh, naples but what can these uh, visual depiction tell us about what it meant to be roman what is roman about this roman visual culture
1: um, this is also a key question. It's something that I grapple with a little bit um, in the conclusion. Is what what do we mean by the word Roman? And I try to be careful in the text about about what I mean by that term. Um, it can be it can mean residents of the city of Rome, um, or it can mean everyone um, residing within the empire's borders. And I tend to use it in that that broader sense of that everyone residing um, within the empire's border. But that doesn't mean that they were. Interested solely in the art and the architecture of the city of Rome, um, there's room for so much more um, survival of deep-seated cultural traditions um, throughout the um, throughout the empire. Um, so I think principally what it tells us about being Roman is that this was very much a global empire. Or to, if we think about it, the Romans, considered their their empire to be global um, in scope. Um, with As they understood the globe at at the time, Um, so this was an or it was a highly expansive empire. It occupied most much of the territory that they that they knew about, Um, and there were highly developed road systems and also highly developed maritime systems. So circulation, um, there were clear routes and pathways of circulation. So it was possible. to be in one place while knowing about lots of other places or being in one place and imagining yourself somewhere else, either because it's coming up in a poem um, or because you're seeing it, uh, maybe you're seeing one of Rome's buildings on a coin that has circulated um, to your region. So what I was trying to do with these objects is to think about like, if we go beyond the city of Rome, what might it be like to be in one city while imagining yourself in a different city? How might you be able, how might material culture help you compare your city um, to a city far away, maybe when you've been to, and maybe when when you haven't been to. Mm.
2: So, could we say that someone who has never seen a Hadrian Wall would recognize a Hadrian Wall on those small cups, um, or or would need to be introduced to that? To what degree would um, maybe the intellectual from the provinces know?
0: Happy price Go to your happy price Priceline.
1: Again, that's that's tricky. Um, one of the tricks with one of one of the aspects that's difficult about Hadrian's Wall is that it's so famous. Um, we all so many people know about it today, and yet it seems not to have been commemorated in official art. There seems the official artists um, seem not to have come up with a formula for representing it. So it was really up to individual craftsmen to come up with a with a, a formula to represent this kind of unprecedented border wall. Um, the solution that they came up with for Hadrian's Wall was to use this fortified wall motif. And so when you see it on the pan, it's actually a continuous wall. And I think on, on the pan, it's probably referring to the forts that are listed um, in the inscription perhaps rather than this, um, the entirety of the wall. And only one of, the, one of these pans actually mentions the wall itself and the other pans just mention forts from it. So this is a case where I think you do probably need to have insider's knowledge um, in order to 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 grasp what's going on, but I think that's not the case with some of the other case studies. I think those um, there are other objects in the book that you where you could use those objects to learn about um, a place you didn't know about. Mm, for example, um, I think the bay bottles are are one of <laughs> okay. those are one let's, of those. Objects. Let's talk
2: about the bay bottles. <laughs> um, They're glass um,
1: bottles again. How big are they? They are um, how do I describe? Maybe six, maybe six inches tall. They're they have a glo- globular base, so they have like a globe-shaped base, and then a very narrow um, spout. So you're obviously going to use these to to pour. Mm-hmm. Um, I think old old bottles of Chianti um, have a comparable shape, um, but these are these are clear glass bottles, mm-hmm.
2: and they are decorated
1: yes um so this is a very common it's a very common shape of bottle um we often find them plain um in many parts of the empire they can bear all different kinds of decoration Um, but there's this unusual series of bottles where um a, a set of them uh they're all depicting cities around the bay of naples and two cities in particular interestingly not pompeii um at the time when they're being made um pompeii has already been buried by vesuvius so it's a good Indication that life in the Bay of Naples went on long after um, Pompeii was really covered up by the eruption of Vesuvius. So we're talking about Baya or Baai and um, Pozuoli or Putuoli. And these are on the, the kind of northwestern edge of the Bay of Naples. Um, these are cities that that um, have faded from fame today. I think today most people know Pompeii, they might know Naples, they probably don't know Bea and Fitzwilli, but they were very famous in antiquity. So it's a case where their fame was far greater um, in antiquity. Um, Bea had a had a reputation. It was the spa town of the Roman elite. Um, this is where where you go um, to have a very luxurious and decadent spa retreat. Um, so there's a like a health component, but there's also definitely a revelry um, component. So it had a, a reputation for kind of hedonism um, and excess and decadence. Um, And this is a a, it's a it's not a a typical city. It's very much a a spa retreat town. So there are lots of um, lots of bath buildings, lots of lots of um, sprawling villa complexes. Um, but not not as much in terms of um, the typical public architecture of a Roman city, which we do find in the other place, which is um, Putuoli or Pozzuoli. This was one of the major ports um, in the Roman Empire; It was a major hub in the maritime network. Um, And this was a typical Roman city. So it had had two amphitheaters, in fact. It had a theater, lots of nice temples, um, even has a stadium. A stadium is a very rare kind of public entertainment building. It's used for track and field events. Um, it's the size of a circus, but used more for, um, for track and wrestling and, and running events. Um, so it had a full complement of um, Roman, Roman public architecture. Um, so two towns that are, you can see one from the other, right? They're, they're visually close and they're on either sides of this little inlet, um, but two completely different um, reputations. So one thing they do have in common is that this is um, a part of Italy that was colonized by Greeks. So they both do have like very deep-seated Greek cultural traditions um, um, behind them.
2: And uh, one of these um, bottles um, that was presumably produced there mm-hmm. is also on the cover of your book. Uh, yes. could, you, could you describe it a little bit, tell us a little bit about it?
1: Yes, yeah. Um, let me call up the picture so that I can I can describe it well for you. Um, this is called the Popolonia bottle, and it's actually held by the um, it's held by the uh, Corning Museum of Glass in New York, which is a fantastic glass museum. I'm a little bit off the beaten path, but well worth a visit if you're if you're a glass specialist. This is uh, mecca for glass glass specialists. Um, this is a beautiful. It's a light green bottle. Um, And it's representing um, both Baia and Pozzoli together. So it's showing us a couple of buildings in Baia, and then the pier at Pozzoli. Pozzoli was really famous for its pier that extended out into the ocean. So it's a clear bottle, and the the, um, the imagery is abraded into the glass, so it has a different texture. Um, So it's just a rough abrasion of the glass. Um, And what's interesting, um, this bottle, like all of the other ones in this series, the individual elements are are labeled. Um, So the pier is labeled um, with the word for pier. Uh, So we have these individual um, have these individual labels, which is really it's it's interesting. Um, We don't find other um, vessels with cityscapes and kind of labeled buildings within them. Um, That said, um, these vessels have been of great interest to um, urban historians and archaeologists because both Bayai and Potswoli have suffered damage from seismic activity. So sometimes um, parts are above the waterline and sometimes parts are below the the waterline. So scholars of those two cities have used these bottles to try to understand what they're finding, but you really can't use them to, to Map the city or walk through the city. It's really a kind of like a highlights reel of of key buildings you might find in in these individual in these individual cities.
2: So this object would have been purchased as a souvenir of someone visiting these cities.
1: That's the, that's the hypothesis. Um, each of these bottles, they have a common repertoire of different buildings and features that, that might show up on them, but each is individual. like Each is unique, so there's not a single like, matrix that someone's just kind of copying. Each one is hand-designed. Hand um, we find them all over, not all over, we find them um, in key spots in the northwestern provinces, so they're found far away. Um, from this place. But the specificity of the, the, the information we get on these bottles and the fact that there were glass working facilities in Pozzuoli suggests that they were probably made in Pozzuoli um, and then perhaps carried um, further afield. I think that becomes more. Um, all the more likely because Pozzuoli is a hub in the maritime network. Um, It is a place you might pass through to pick up a connecting boat or to switch over Mm -hmm. to traveling by road. Um, So there were uh, all kinds of people passing through um, Pozzuoli who might have picked up one of these these bottles.
2: right. So we are talking quite uh, of a nuanced understanding of of this material culture, be it um, small glass vessels or... Um, much heavier um, silver items. Um, I wonder how, if you could let us know a bit more, how you come up with the idea for this book, the research, and um, how you selected these particular locations and this particular
1: set of objects. Right, so I I was actually writing a different book. I was writing a book on Celtic art, um, and um, how, what what happens to Celtic arts before, during, and after um, conquest by Rome? And I became obsessed with the these objects from Hadrian's Wall, especially this so-called Elam pan that was recently discovered by the metal detector um, specialist, and which has this Celtic imagery um, as part of the decoration of the vessel. And when I was writing the chapter on those vessels, um, I, I realized that I I needed to understand how souvenirs were functioning in the Roman empire. Um, at the time, there, there wasn't much work um, done on souvenirs. Um, there was some pioneering work by Ernst Kunzel, who's an, a very eminent um, German scholar, who did some fin- foundational work on souvenirs in the Roman empire, but there wasn't there wasn't much else. And I really wanted to understand, um, I wanted to understand how these objects were, were functioning in the hands of the people who were holding them. And I, I wanted to understand how these objects were um, uh, serving as kind of catalysts for understanding um, different places within the empire. So I set aside the Celtic book and decided to make that, that chapter mm-hmm. on those souvenirs part of a book um, about souvenirs. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the hard decisions I had to make was what to include and what to exclude. And so I decided to limit my focus to objects that had both text and images that made it really clear which place was being ca- conjured. So that I could, because I did want to compare like the evocation of that place on the object to the actual place. And I also wanted to be able to compare those things to the place where the object ended up. And so constraining my, um, constraining my, my set of evidence in that way um, made the most sense to me.
2: Okay, um, so I'm Tanya Tuller, and I'm now talking to Kimberly Casabury about her new book, Destinations in Mind, portraying places on the Roman Empire's souvenirs. And uh, I would like to ask something that really attracted me to the book, um, beside, of course, all the the glass objects that you are discussing, and that was um, the sentence that not all roads lead to Rome. And I was wondering, I have to talk to her more about this. What does she mean? Should we change our expression? And um, obviously, reading uh, your book, I have learned um, on so many other roads and so many other important locations. Um, But for the Romans of the time, um, would they agree that not all roads led to Rome?
1: Oh, another another tough question. I think it depends on on who you ask. I think if you ask a Roman senator, then obviously all roads lead to the capital of the empire. Um, If we look at how people are actually moving around the empire and if we look at how objects are moving around the empire and if we look at how motifs and um, styles and trends are moving around the empire, um, not everything is passing through the city of Rome and not everything is about um, the city of Rome. I think the, the bay bottles that we were just talking about are a good example of that. Um, one of the ones that's come from a recent excavation was actually found in Merida, um, in mm-hmm. Spain, which was another leading city of the Roman Empire, which had a similar complement of major major buildings. So that was a place where um, you could have passed through, um, Pudzuli picked up this bottle, made your way to Merida, and when you're in Merida, then you could use the bottle to compare your cityscape to the one at Pudzuli, perhaps. And that doesn't involve passing through Rome um, at all. And similarly, um, I think even if we think about uh, roads leading to Rome, like the the itinerary cups where the itinerary is really going from Spain to Rome repeatedly, um, if we think about someone going to Rome for the first time, and like passing through all of those cities along the way. You're passing through Cadiz and Seville and Cordoba and Tarragona and Nîmes and Arles and Susa and Rimini. Um, Before you get to Rome, I think you have a a sense of a a global art and architectural style um, with local variations um, before you even get to the city of Rome. So you don't actually need the city of Rome um, to teach you those things. Uh, I think you'd already know quite a lot about the empires um, styles of art and architecture before you even got there.
2: I also think um, today we are so much faced with visual everywhere. So the photos are everywhere. Everybody's snapping photos of everything and everybody. Um, I think we also understand material culture from 1,700, 2,000 years back um, a bit differently because we think All those images were present at that time too, but that would not be the case. But we are learning through your work so much of this evoked um, memory, in a sense. So somebody might have gone to all these places and talked about all these places and written about these places and brought objects with them to talk about the stories that they encountered on the road. Um, Are there more souvenirs of this kind um, out there that uh, you could have explored, but you've decided not to include in this book?
1: Yes. Um, so there, there are all kinds of objects that are moving around as souvenirs, but with don't necessarily have text on them. Um, so I'm thinking particularly of um, objects that are acquired on pilgrimages, um, there are uh, pagan pilgrimages um, in the context of the Roman Empire um, in addition to the Christian pilgrimages that will pick up um, in, in later centuries. So those objects, um, those, that kind of object is also um, uh, circling the empire. And I, I should uh, make a plug for a colleague here, um, my colleague, Maggie Popkin who's at Case Western Reserve University in the United States, has a, new, has a book coming out um, with Cambridge University Press on souvenirs, and she does consider a wider range of objects. And her pr- approach is more um, interested in the memory work that they might be doing, how you might learn from them, how they might prompt memory, um, even if they don't have text on them. Whereas my book was more interested in um, um, evocations of place and, and understanding where you are in a global empire
2: fascinating well another book i need to read again then (laughs) once it is out well thank you very much kimberly i've been uh talking to kimberly casserbury about her book destinations in mind portraying places on the roman empire souvenirs um out now from um, oxford university press my name uh, is tanya toller and uh, thank you
1: very much for your attention thank you bye